You wouldn't buy a car without a seatbelt, a laptop without Wi-Fi, or go a day without your cell phone. Could a business survive without the internet? Then why are many healthcare providers and provider organizations still not connected and enabled to share critical clinical information digitally in the care of your friends and family? Welcome to Notify, a podcast from Notu. Join host Dr. Peter Schock, Chief Health Officer, and Teresa Bell, Founder, President, and CTO, as they bring the profound impact of healthcare communication to life through frank conversation in understandable language and through real-world context, they'll demystify interoperability, helping you unlock the potential of healthcare communication at scale. You'll also learn the transformative impact of being no two connected. Connect. Connect. Listen. Listen. Transform. Transform. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Notify. Dr. Peter Shuck here with Teresa Bell. Teresa, we're going to pick up where we left off, I think, in our last episode where we were talking about kind of interoperability is foundational to solving some of healthcare's biggest problems. And we were illustrating that through an actual healthcare kind of story. It actually happened to be a personal story of yours. Um, and I want you to recap that so that we can kind of keep people up uh, updated where we are and, and uh, catch up to where we uh, left off um, in our last episode. Um, and we'll be discussing it through the persona of impact today of the provider a little bit. So um, do you mind catching us up with uh, where we are? Kind of remind us the journey and then catch us up over the last week or we can have. So about four weeks ago, my father, who has kind of late onset of Parkinson's diagnosed kind of late in life with it and also osteoporosis was had a fall, uh, unfortunately, in a rural area in southern Minnesota and ended up uh, having multiple fractures to his hip um, and spending some time in the hospital, had surgery, hip replacement surgery, and then, of course, transitioned to an inpatient rehab facility where he was there for about two weeks, uh, just kind of transitioning to get ready to go home and had some eye-opening experiences, I would say, in those uh, in those environments where going from an EMT crew that brought him to the to the rural hospital, critical access hospital, then transported up to near my parents' house, which was about three hours north, um, to then go into surgery and have a stay in the acute care facility and transitioned out. There was many points where information should have been flowing and it wasn't. Um, yeah. And we talked about that in the last episode. Uh, but fortunately, he did uh, actually make decent progress while he was in the inpatient rehab facility for um, an 81-year-old man with osteoporosis and Parkinson's and just broke his hip. It was He was doing pretty good. So um, ended up being discharged about a week, and I have to look at it, a week and a half ago uh, to home with some home care uh, and home health services. And that's where we're kind of picking up. And so I was there. Um, I had the benefit of going home again this last week and spending the week there and helping my folks out and getting him to follow up patient, his uh, physician visits and different providers that are taking care of him. And then watching actual care in the home being delivered. Uh, and then he had two virtual visits, which was, which was an interesting uh, opportunity also. So lots, lots going on, very, very busy, um, but many different experiences. And I would say I've, I've kind of got to experience the continuum of care. And and seeing different personas uh, and different provider personas that that sit within it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I look forward to discussing all of those things. And I'd forgotten about seeing the in-home care uh, through therapy and uh, care rendered in the home, et cetera. I think one of the other things that we've talked about too is just the impact on your family, who's also caring for your dad, right? Um, you've got a, a family yeah. of sisters and yourself, uh, your mother, who are all trying to care for your dad in some way or another and share information, which is another interesting uh, perspective. Uh, today, we're going to talk a lot about the visit that you had uh, with the neurologist, I believe it was, um, as we were talking about it. Yes. And just just uh, when we come back from break, we'll talk about that visit, set us up for that visit. Um, and then I think there's some things that we want to talk about, but really focusing on how interoperability foundationally helps solve some of healthcare's biggest problems through the eyes of the provider persona of impact, meaning what does it do for the provider? How does it help the provider? 
And I think we'll probably get into an interesting discussion about provider psyche around interoperability and, and their perceptions of interoperability <laughs> as well. So I'm looking forward to that discussion when we come back. I feel like you're going to turn the tables on me, is what, is what I feel like. That is exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. I will say, <laughs> before we go to break, <laughs> I don't know if I can answer all of them, but I will say before we go to break, when you were given the history and recapping the story, I had to, I had to really withhold jumping in and saying this is an 81-year-old white male with a history of osteoporosis and Parkinson's disease who presents with, because that's the way we- well, I made up a late, I think I made up a diagnosis. It was late onset Parkinson's. I've heard the physician say that, so I- <laughs> No, I thought it was great. I, I thought it was it. great. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, dig right into it. Hey, everyone. My name is Matt Becker, VP of Interoperability at No2. I wanted to take a moment to introduce our connectivity report. Did you ever wonder who in your area you could connect with digitally and reduce the manual activities associated with clinical information exchange? Well, simply visit no2.com, click the link for connectivity report, then enter your name, email, and zip code, and we'll send you a report to show those providers and provider organizations already connected and waiting for you to join them. Take the first step to getting No2 connected. It's free, takes less than 30 seconds, and will spark digital transformation that could revolutionize your business. There's even a how-to video to make sure you get the most from the report. Connect. Listen. Transform. This is Notify with your host, Dr. Peter Shuck and Teresa Bell. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Teresa, when we left, we were talking about uh, a recent visit to the neurologist that you were able to accompany your father on uh, when you were home uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday uh, to visit him. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about that today. And I want you to first, if you don't mind, just kind of set the stage for the listeners of um, uh, what was going on, what was on your mind that day, how were you feeling that day, how did you see the appointment, etc. And then I know you have some observations and probably some questions. I do. It's your turn to ask some questions. <laughs> You're on the hot seat now. That sounds um, fine. <laughs> so it was just by happenstance, actually, uh, that this visit was scheduled. It wasn't scheduled because of his accident. He has um, standing visits with his neurologist for Parkinson's Parkinson's review. So I think this was his three month. I think it's every three months. He She hasn't come in. Um, and hey, Teresa, fantastic in this provider. It, in this case, sorry to interrupt you, but in this case, you were also, is it a sister that normally takes him? So this was kind of new to you. Were you kind of catching up in that regard? Yeah, my, uh, I don't live there uh, with my parents. So there's, I have a, I have a lot of sisters, but there's one particular sister that is the primary, kind of the primary caregiver. Um, you know, my mom's 80 years old and she does a fantastic job too, but my sister is the primary caregiver and has been at most of those appointments. Uh, and she loaded me up with information that she uh, she wanted me to make sure I, I uh, checked in on she's she's great that way. She was not able to. Um, she actually had surgery the week before. So she was she was not able to. I was able to be there and 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 be with my dad. Um, so, you know, brought him into the appointment again. It was just happenstance that it was scheduled uh, by the time he got home and was able to actually go because otherwise he would not have been able to uh, be at the visit. Uh, so we got there and and it was I w we were checked in, of course, like you would normally be. And we were immediately handed a generic, she pulled it from the side of the, the desk she was registering at, a generic kind of four page, uh, I guess a patient form uh, that they use. And it's very standard, you could tell they use it. Uh, and it was four pages and it was comprehensive. There was a lot of information to fill out. And it was as if he had never been there. Um, and, and they were looking for any changes in condition. And I'm like, okay, here I go, I'm gonna have to write a book out because it was clear <laughs> To me, that was my first indication that she had no idea, um, even though she is part of the health network that that my dad participates in, uh, she had no idea. And this was going to be a lot of information to have to download for her. So ended up taking about, thank goodness we were there early. It took about 30 minutes to fill out all the paperwork. For, was that, for was the that manual and, paperwork? Was that you were filling yeah, out with pen and paper? Yeah. And you talk about physician's handwriting being bad. Mine's real bad. So I'm like, good luck on this one. <laughs> good luck getting through this paperwork. Um, so filled it out. Literally took me 30 minutes to fill it out. And my mom could have never completed that right as my dad's a company. Of course, my dad can't. He doesn't have a steady enough hand to write it out. So um, going through it and completed it. And I knew 
by the time I was done, it was buttoned up right against the visit. So I'm like, oh man, this is this is going to be a lot of information for her to take in. Uh, at the same time, she thinks it's a routine, you know, three months checkup for for my dad's, you know, Parkin or his Parkinson's. Can I ask a question? That so so was this the same neurologist that's seen him before? Yeah, she's the one who diagnosed him with Parkinson's. That's where it started. Okay. Uh, so she's been with him through his journey uh, as he's managed through his Parkinson's when that he didn't know he had even osteoporosis until after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, and then he broke his back four times. And so she's been through all of that with, you know, kind of with my dad. Um, but here we was are she again, aware that right? he had been so, in the hospital? Was she aware that he had been in the hospital with a hip fracture? No, I had no idea. That's what I was saying. She was part of the yeah. health system that gotcha. my, my dad's part of, but had no awareness to it. Uh, well, it, I had assumed she did not have awareness because of, I was handed a blank form to fill out. So that was probably an assumption on my part, but it was clear that the assumption was correct. So butted up right against the appointment, finished out the paperwork, hand it to the, to the gal at the front desk. She gives it back to the provider. They call us right back. And as she's, I, we go into the physician's office, have a kind of a private consult in there. And as she's reading through it, you know, she, she's definitely like on her heels. Uh, in terms of all the information that was that was in that documentation, uh, plus he had a couple new medications he was taking, so had had to make sure that she had that information. Uh, so I don't think she was anticipating having. I know she wasn't having all that information in front of her and and looking through it and having to I think reassess and kind of reorganize on the spot in terms of what she would normally be doing in his routine visit and now what she was doing. Uh, so that was <laughs> that was an interesting moment uh, for me. Um, so as as he, she was working her way through questions, she was fantastic. Uh, you know, calmly worked her way through questions, trying to get a, a quick review of my dad's capabilities, where he was at. She kept on using the words, "We're going to establish a new baseline. We're going to figure out what your baseline is." Um, of course, that's going to be over the next few months, and then she'd ask him questions that she was looking at. And so we got through the visit. It took we were scheduled, I think, for thirty minutes. It took an hour. Um, to get through the visit. And then, you know, kind of at the end there, uh, of course, I had to uh, do my job. <laughs> and I was sitting there because I, I always look for just what is the provider's workflow? What is the provider's experience? So I asked her, I said, hey, was this all a surprise to you uh, for my dad? And she kind of looked at me like, well, yeah, you know, like, like I was dumb, <laughs> which, you know, that's okay. She, she, yeah. Uh, she goes, well, yeah, you know, kind of why wouldn't it be a surprise to me? And I said, may I ask you what electronic health record you use? And she named a name, which I'll withhold from the podcast here. She named the name of the electronic health work. It's absolutely a mainstay healthcare uh, EHR platform that's used. Um, and she, I said, do you have access to my dad's outside records? from his primary care provider, you know, from his stay at the hospital, can you see it even if you're part of the main health system? She goes, well, I can, I have this one button over here where I can log into the health system. I can basically log into the health system's EHR through their portal, uh, yeah. through their provider portal, but I have to go get it and know to go get it. Right. Um, and I said, okay, well, that's interesting. I said, do you, do you know that your EHR has the capability to get this information, not only from the health system you're part of, but really from any provider in the community. And that's kind of in, in mainstream healthcare, uh, be able to get this information from any, any of them. And in some cases you can be alerted to the, to the condition happening. Cause to her point, she would have to be aware of it to know to go get it. Uh, even with like things like care quality and Commonwealth, there's not necessarily an event, but it will pull it in front of a registration and an upcoming appointment. And you know, I thought I anticipated, you know, she would be as emotional as I get talking about interoperability. And that was not the case. <laughs> it was, a, would say, a lackluster response. And I, I, I was now put on back of my heels. I'm like, why would why would she respond that way? And why would she not be motivated uh, and excited? Because I was telling her, hey, your EHR is capable of this. Looks like it's maybe not turned on. Thinking that she would have an emotional reaction to that because man, all the things it would do for her. And it, and it didn't go that way. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, this is not what I expected to happen. And so I, you know, I said, you know what, I'm going to ask Dr. Sheck about this. <laughs> because 
it, it, it really did set me back. Like, and it was kind of, as I had mentioned in the first podcast, there was moments when I left, although it's expected, you know, the inpatient rehab and all these, all the information that was missing throughout his journey, it really weighed heavily on me because of the amount of work that I know we have in front of us. But I didn't fully expect that, probably in ignorance, sitting in an eligible provider's office or somebody that's that likely went through meaningful use and went through all that. I didn't expect that same statement or that same just kind of lackluster feeling. So I guess my first question seeking on a, you know, kind of formulate it to you is why? Why would a provider, especially in that space, respond that way when I hear it? I, I think that that would be so exciting and prevent present so much opportunity for them and everything else. Why? Why would they respond that way? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a simple answer um, for every provider. Um, I would tell you, and I, I, I can't pretend to speak specifically for a provider, but I think there are some general uh, principles that are probably true. What I have witnessed both as a practicing provider for 20 years and then as somebody who was organizing providers, um, either as part of a large health system or part of large clinically integrated networks to manage care, um, there's a learned helplessness among providers um, around everything that surrounds the healthcare ecosystem, right? We have electronic records happen to us. We didn't ask for them. They happened to us, right? Um, and they immediately changed the way we document our clinical thinking, um, uh, the information that's important to us. It immediately changed the way we view the information that's important to us. And that doesn't seem important to a lot of people. But when you're a healthcare provider, like other professions, but specifically when you're a healthcare provider, you count on patterns and you count on habits to make certain that you're not missing critical information that's relevant yeah. to a good decision. And so when external sources are coming at you, changing this, changing that, putting in an EHR, telling you where the information goes, telling you what your workflow should be, as opposed to designing the electronic documentation tool based upon the workflow that's right for you as a neurologist or as a primary care doctor, et cetera, and you can't change it, there's a learned helplessness that comes with that, um, to be frank. Number two, I think there is a fear amongst providers um, that either they won't have the critical information that's relevant to them, or they'll have too much information that they can't possibly digest and somebody will hold them responsible to a piece of data that wasn't relevant to their current clinical decision-making, but somehow was relevant to the patient's condition and they didn't see it. Um, they didn't view it. It got hidden in a part of a record that they didn't see, et cetera. <clears throat> and quite frankly, the volume of data that's available to providers through interoperability and other means um, is can be overwhelming. And I've often said uh, providers don't want more data. Um, they want the right data in the right uh, format at the right time in their workflow um, that's relevant to clinical decision-making. And I think there's a lot in that statement. It sounds simple to say that statement, but there's a lot in that statement in, in my mind. And some of it is predicated on what do we mean when we say data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. And there's this life cycle that I see in providers. <clears throat> data means nothing to me. Data with the context of a patient record, a, a disease condition, a vital sign, something of that nature, that's now data with context, that's information. Information that actually gets to me in a format I can digest in the workflow and is relevant for my critical decision making, that's knowledge. Um, and that's what we seek. And then knowledge over time becomes wisdom, right? When you, when you have habits built around that knowledge, which is information coming in the right places at the right time, relevant to what we're thinking about, <clears throat> that's knowledge. Knowledge over time becomes wisdom. So this, there's this life cycle. And we have focused on getting doctors data We've not focused on giving doctors knowledge, right? Um, now, you and I have talked many, many times around, we don't want to talk about interoperability because when interoperability is really working, we're not talking about data. Doctors are getting knowledge, right? Knowledge is incredibly important. Knowledge is helpful. So I think there's a learned helplessness around <clears throat> what's available to them, 
I think doctors are overwhelmed with data. Um, data is not coming to them in the form of knowledge. It's coming to them in many times as raw data. Um, and it's being put in places that they have no influence over um, in many cases. And so it actually changes their workflow, maybe not for the better um, and can be challenging. Secondly, I don't think a doctor, um, and this is going to sound cavalier and I don't want to sound cavalier, but I, I, let me say it differently. I'll say it this way. I'll be careful about the way I say this. To me, the relevant clinical record for a patient is the available information that I have in front of me that's relevant to the clinical decisions I need to make at the time I need to make them. In other words, if somebody had an urgent care visit a year ago and there may be information there that would be relevant to me, but I don't have any line of sight to it, I don't have any understanding of it, the patient can't report it to me, et cetera, it means nothing to me right? It means nothing to me. And if that data comes into the record and I'm not aware of it, or it's not filtered in the way that I need to be able to see it, not built in my workflow, that's a liability for me. You know, we were talking to a group um, where an ER doctor had given feedback that says, Hey, I don't want that much information from EMS because it just becomes a liability for me. Um, uh, the more information I have, that's the learned helplessness of, because you guys are just dumping data at me. You're not going through the life cycle of data, information, knowledge. I want knowledge. I don't think there's a doctor that you would hear say, no, don't give me any more knowledge. Every one of them would say, give me more knowledge, right? Because it impacts the decisions they make. All of them are going to say, don't give me any more data. I can't digest raw data anymore um, and still do everything I need to do. And to some degree, your poor neurologist was trying to do that, right? She was taking really raw his historic information on a manual form, she was probably trying to translate that into an electronic record or an electronic note about the visit you know, while that was happening um, or knew she was going to have to after she walked out, yeah. right? So your appointment may have been an hour, but she was going to have another hour of documenting uh, all the things from the notes and so forth in there, right? It's not a bad thing, but but but, but I want you to put, I want to put you in the, in the seat of a provider, right? You know, he, here's the other thing too, that, that I would probably say went through her mind a little bit. Um, because it happened, it's happened to me. You're embarrassed. I, I'm, I'm a provider and I've got a patient I've taken care of for a number of years with a chronic diagnosis that requires me to get to know the patient, know the family, understand the, the, the prognosis and the long-term outlook for the disease, et cetera. And they have a medical problem that I'm not involved in at all. They get shipped to a hospital, have a surgery. I can't do anything about the surgery, right? They don't consult me about the medicines. They probably consult the hospitalist about the Parkinson medications. Um, and I may get an ADT that he was in the hospital, but I don't really know what that is. And it's, you know, two weeks of care. Um, and I get a single note with a bunch of information on it that I'm going to have to verify um, and recheck anyway, because I looked at it through a portal. Um, I got it through a, a, a CDN. I don't know where it goes in my EHR, et cetera. So, when that happens and you're sitting there with the family and the patient and they're saying, Hey, did you know I was in the hospital? And you don't, that's kind of, you get embarrassed. Um, and the other thing that does is not just embarrassed, but then I've used this example when we talked about um, uh, implementing electronic health records and why doctors seem to react with anger uh, around EHRs and changes in EHRs. And it's really out of fear. Um, uh, we've talked about that. It's out of fear, not being able to find what they need and so forth. Fear of looking stupid in front of patients and so forth. Interoperability can be the same thing. Um, if I'm embarrassed because I feel like I should have been able to say, yeah, I was aware that they were in the hospital and I've gotten that information and you didn't have to fill out this form because I got that information here and I can quickly validate that with you or verify that with you with some simple questions that allow me to build rapport and so forth. But because it's just information contained in a document that's put away somewhere in the EHR, it's not as useful uh, to them. So it goes back to this, this idea that we've talked about over and over and over again. And I think it's frustrating and inspiring at the same time. And that is that I want knowledge given to all doctors. And that's the point of interoperability to me, right? To provide them the knowledge they need to make good clinical decisions. Um, and the reality of it is there's a lot of things that have to happen before we can say that we can consistently do that, right? Connectivity is that first step, right? Getting connected, letting the information flow. That's the role we play. 
the magic that happens around once the information, <clears throat> what information flows, we can actually have some uh, impact there through data enhancement services and so forth. But the HRs have got to really, 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 the systems of record have really got to uh, partner with us and partner with their providers to say, how do we turn this raw data, churn it through information and actually present you with knowledge that's useful to you um, and that's useful to the patients you serve? So anyway, I think I'll sum it up by saying, um, uh, and then we can take a quick break, but I, I think what you what you witnessed is a combination of very complex feelings in a provider, one of learned helplessness, number two of um, uh, fear um, around uh, being held accountable for data um, that didn't actually bring knowledge to them, but somehow is contained in their electronic record and they weren't aware of it. Um, being overwhelmed by data that's not particularly useful um, to the decisions they're trying to make at that moment um, and having to sort through that data to get to those useful bits of information um, can make it difficult. Um, and then I think just if interoperability were working the way you and I want it to work, right, where we don't have to talk about it because people are just doing it um, and it's just happening. Um, I don't think you'd see any embarrassment or any apathy to it. Um, and, and and the apathy would be actually more reflected of this is the normal status um, uh, standard operating procedures that I have all the relevant information that I need, um, all the knowledge that I need to make good, good clinical decisions. So I hope that helps a little bit. I And again, if you have some follow-up questions, I think that's great. I, I just... I have a great deal of empathy um, for providers in this world, but I also understand that if we just take their first answer on the surface, we're going to miss opportunities to provide education. And once you've educated a doctor about what they have, and once you've shown them an example of where data moves through the information lifecycle and becomes knowledge for them and how that impacts them and their patient, You've got a true believer, you've got a convert, and you'll never have a doctor that's more motivated um, around interoperability. But I don't think that message is out there, right? This this has been, it goes back to something we've talked about before, I think, Trace, and that is that it's largely been a technical conversation. It's not been a business conversation or an impact conversation. That's part of why you and I are proselytizing all this on the on the podcast is because interoperability has got to move from just a technical conversation or primarily a technical conversation to a business conversation. And healthcare is a business. It's the business of caring for people, right? And using science to care for people. That's the business of it. And the reality of it is we've got to get to a point where we're talking about the business impact across these personas of impact that we've created um, uh, moving forward. So I, and I think it's not that the technical conversation doesn't need to occur. It does. It absolutely does. But it's a secondary conversation of how do we achieve the business impact of of interoperability? I think it's a uh, kind of a good after break um, pick up on the education piece. Well, I do appreciate your reflection on, when you initially started to say that there's a process that providers use consistently to ensure they don't, you know, bring as much assurance to not making mistakes, not forgetting things. So it's not ad hoc. There's a consistent process every time used. Um, and we're asking them to modify the process, right? And so it may not be an outright resistance to change, but that is a significant ask for a provider because of the amount of liability and the amount of pressure that sits on their shoulders every day. As you know, I started this company for the provider. That is what motivated me. Everybody, people say the patient, and of course I care about the patient, but the provider, if we keep the provider at the center, everything else kind of works out, right? And so as I'm I'm always watching for provider engagement and that amount of pressure, because I could see the pressure on her sitting in that moment and saying, okay, I'm reassessing, I'm reassessing, (laughs) recalibrating here to determine how I'm going to engage with this patient. Um, but that change in process, that's one of the key things I think I heard you say is that change in process is a significant ask and a significant thought, um, that needs to be brought to it. And there has to be enough benefit on the other side to, to do that. I would assume I'm, I'm making assumptions here. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really good. And I'm so glad you picked that piece out because I didn't emphasize it as much as it should be emphasized. You're talking about the change management 
that goes into the process of actually operationalizing interoperability, right? In the way that we're talking about. There's a huge change management process. If it were just data could flow and it didn't impact workflow or didn't impact where they had to look for information, that would that that would be one thing, right? Um, there'd still be change management and that I've got more information in there. I've got to figure out how to, to do that, uh, to look at all that stuff. <clears throat> but when it's information that doesn't necessarily come in in a format that they're used to, um, in a window that they're used to looking at or need to be in when they're documenting care or looking for data for care, et cetera, um, yeah, it's a significant change management piece. And here's the other thing that I think with providers that we need to understand too. And again, it goes back to the idea that it's business. And 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 I hope, I'm just going to say this carte blanche today, and I hope that it'll just carry over uh, as in a halo effect for the rest of our podcast. But there is no question that I and most of my colleagues, the vast majority of my colleagues got into healthcare because it was a practical body of knowledge that could alleviate suffering individuals and they could apply what they loved about science, what they enjoyed about science to the welfare and benefit of others, right? <clears throat> However they state that, I think there's a lot of truth in that regard. Um, so when I talk about the business of healthcare, I hope that our audience will will hear me say that I didn't get into this to make money. I didn't get into this to be wealthy. I didn't get into this for prestige. I got into this because I really wanted to have an impact in people's lives and and love the science and, and found that that science allowed me to do that in a very positive way. But it is a business. It is a business. And we can't keep apologizing for the fact that it's a business. And I say all that to say this. When we talk about change management with providers, providers, time is money. Time is money in healthcare, right? Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, I get paid to see people, to make clinical decisions for people, and it takes time to do that. And the quicker I can assimilate the appropriate knowledge to make a good clinical decision on behalf of the patient, build the right rapport, the more efficient I can become, right? So that anything that slows that down actually impacts my business financially, right? Um, So if I can't get information I need effectively, or I have to spend a lot of time loading manual documents, getting manual uh, things off the fax uh, machine and collating them and scanning them in, filling out and reviewing manual forms that a patient fills out, and then trying to transpose those into an electronic health record, all of that stuff creates enormous inefficiency that frustrates providers because, and I'm just going to be honest with about this, there is no compensation for that. There is no, and, and, and the more time that my colleagues spend doing that, the less time they actually spend knowing your dad, knowing what the family's challenges are and being able to address those things. And I think yeah, it goes back to the the passion around the provider experience and how if we don't get the provider experience right and don't understand that that doctors are human too, that that providers and and I'll use the term provider is bigger than doctors, whether they be nurses, MAs, whatever. We're all humans first, <clears throat> and we've got the same <clears throat> challenges, the same things that motivate us, motivate everybody else, the same things that that cause us uh, everybody else uh, discomfort, uh, cause us discomfort, etc. And we've got to recognize them as human first. Um, they're trying to do an incredibly difficult thing. Um, and um, so I really appreciate the call out to the change management component to it, uh, to be honest. That, 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 that is huge. And I want people to understand why change management is so huge because time is money. Um, and for docs as well, as I alluded to earlier, um, any change runs the risk of me not knowing where to find something. I don't know. I would ask you, ask any of our listeners, have you ever sat in a room with somebody who is looking to you to make critical decisions about their health care and you as a person not been able to find a critical piece of information that was going to determine what their next test was, whether we're going to be able to prescribe a medication, how well controlled their disease was, what their prognosis was. If you've not been in that situation, God bless you. For those of us who have gone 
transition from paper to electronic health records, one electronic health record to another, we've been there. Um, we have been in a room with a patient fumbling around for a hemoglobin A1C or a medication or trying to find the right medication to put in when they tell us what medication it is. All of that kind of stuff that seems so esoteric and we don't talk about it outside of doctors, you know, complaining about electronic health records and so forth. But every one of those moments that makes me feel and look incompetent to my patient erodes the confidence in the physician-patient relationship, the trust in the physician-patient relationship that we work so hard to build. And it takes away from rapport-building, clinical decision-making time um, that is most critical to good outcomes. So, um, So when you throw interoperability on top of that, right, and you're saying now we've got information that I know is valuable, but I'm going to ask you to ingest that on top of everything else. And right now I'm going to ask you to be the filter of what's relevant, and not relevant, the deduplicator of what comes in, um, the, you know, and go to two or three different places to find it um, and amalgamate it all. Man, that's a hell of an ask for a provider, um, which is why I love this conversation around interoperability, because I think when you and I are talking about it, We've got some exciting conversations yet to happen, but but there are significant strides that we can make. And I know that that we are completely focused on how do we do it in the right way? How do we do it in a way uh, that makes it easy for providers to actually use it um, in a way that's impactful? So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but I, I really appreciate you calling out the change management piece of it. So let's take a quick break, Teresa, and we'll come back. Um, and kind of sum up the conversation. How's that? Getting No2 Connected gives you the freedom to unlock your potential and improve patient safety. Visit us at no2.com for more information and to see providers in your area waiting to connect with you. Connect. Listen. Transform. This is Notify with your host, Dr. Peter Shuck and Teresa Bell. Welcome back, everyone. I'm, uh, I've, I've uh, hijacked this podcast, as everybody knows, and I'm asking <laughs> Dr. Shuck questions on uh, the provider reaction to interoperability, in particular, um, I'd say eligible providers and those, those that were incentivized. And the reason I, I created that distinction, because I think it's expected uh, on the first half of my, my, uh, my, my father's experience was, you know, engaging with the post-acute world, which we're still doing that. But I I think it's always been expected that post-acute because they didn't get incentivized, although I I, I don't allow for that excuse much anymore. Um, they didn't get incentivized that they don't know and they're they're not educated, right? And they need to be. Uh, but I didn't necessarily have that expectation when I when I went into the to the provider's office, my my uh, father's physician for his neurologist's office. And I didn't have that expectation. I, I thought for sure, one, that they would likely be connected and that there would be an understanding of it. And that wasn't the case, um, as we've talked about. And just going through those questions, Dr. Shuck, and that was really informative for me because I think it's all about perspectives and healthcare. Um, and that's part of solving the larger problem, uh, that at least that no to and, and myself, when I started the company, we've sought to, uh, to take on and to tackle. Um, but I'm going to ask you a question because it's it's hard not to feel this way sometimes. Is it is is it insurmountable what we're what we're trying to tackle here? Is it insurmountable? And curious on your perspective. Wow, it's a big question. Um, and um, my initial response is, what are the choices? What does the does the answer to that question matter? So are you Ever saying the industry is going to push them? No, I, I guess what I'm thinking is Everest exists and seems insurmountable, but people challenge it every year, right? And many are successful. Maybe that's not a good example. I, I guess I don't. I guess I don't care. I don't see it as a. I don't see it as a, a destination. I see it as a journey. And God bless the incrementalists in this regard, because I don't think it's a journey. Um, I don't think it's a destination we're going to reach overnight. There are many waypoints um, uh, along the journey. And I think we keep plugging away. And if we have a good roadmap of where we want to go um, with interoperability and what we think we need out of interoperability, then we just start chipping away. We put one foot in front of the other and we start the journey and we keep walking and we keep walking and we keep walking. We occasionally check in to make sure we're on the right route. Uh, We make sure that we're making progress by hitting certain waypoints. 
But I, I, I think at the end of the day, quite frankly, 10 years from now, interoperability may look different. Um, uh, there'll be something else uh, about it, a new way to do it, a better way to do it, uh, different information. Artificial intelligence may provide a layer of uh, um, non-human intelligence over top of some of the data that actually uh, makes it easier to ingest information appropriately. So lots of different things out there on the horizon. So I don't know as you ever arrive. Um, uh, I think when I think about interoperability, it is a series of incremental steps. Each one in themselves don't feel at all transformational and they can feel like you're being bogged down um, uh, on a regular basis. But when you add two or three of those steps together, it can be transformational. It can be transformational on a micro level for an individual provider, an individual patient, an individual healthcare business or entity. Um, and I think that's what we hang our hats on every day that kind of keeps us coming back to the well uh, to do more. When I think about providers, um, I think the way to overcome some of what we think is a barrier to a desire to interoperability or an appreciation of what interoperability can do and therefore adoption of interoperability at a conceptual level, um, not so much a technical level, but a conceptual level, is educate providers. Uh, I think when, when, when you make the distinction between um, those providers that were incentivized uh, in meaningful use and those that weren't, I don't draw that distinction. And I, I don't draw that distinction, probably naively so, but I don't draw that distinction because I'm looking at them as providers in general. And what providers are looking for is to have all of the relevant knowledge about their patient available to them at the time of clinical decision-making such that they can make better, more timely clinical decisions in an efficient workflow and an efficient process. That benefits everybody. That's what providers are looking for. And I don't care if that provider is a nurse in a, in, in a nursing home. I don't care if that provider is a nurse in home care, a doctor at hospice, or a doctor uh, neurologist uh, in their private practice. That is true for every one of those scenarios. Um, that's that that's what's happening in that regard. Now, there are business functions around that, but that's what's happening um, in, in a provider's mentality. Um, and I think that educating providers around the impact of interoperability and how it actually, when done well, can solve the problems um, in healthcare that they're facing on a regular basis. <clears throat> and we illustrate this through our four personas. We illustrate it through the business fundamentals of a healthcare entity. We illustrate it through a provider experience. We illustrate it through patient experience. And then on a large scale at a macro level, um, I call it Uncle Sam. We kind of um, in, uh, show the impact of interoperability on the healthcare system at a macro level as a whole, cost, quality, outcomes, et cetera. Today, we talked about the provider, and I think that was incredibly important, um, but educating the provider around the impact on their experience, the impact on the care they deliver, um, such that it's not a technical conversation. It's a fundamental conversation around how we deliver care. Um, is important. And then I think painting a roadmap for them that says, hey, I can get you connected. There are a number of different things that we can do with the data. And, you know, we've taken some steps very specifically to provide value on top of just connection with the data they receive. And then partnering with the, our, our systems of record to be able to say, okay, what do you do with the data um, uh, that you get? And how does that become actual knowledge for providers? I think that's incredibly important um, uh, for them to understand it's a journey. The first step is getting connected. They don't need to feel helpless about that. Get connected, understand <clears throat> the impact uh, of interoperability for them and for the entire um, uh, patient population they serve, uh, for their healthcare business, et cetera. And then become vocal about it. Start with the things that are most important to you in your practice. Everybody's going to be at a different place of need and have a different concept of what relevant information or relevant knowledge is for them to make decisions. Be vocal about that with your EHR partners. Be vocal about that with your interoperability solutions um, so that we can begin to roadmap what's important to you um, and what's important for your patient population, what's important for your community. And interoperability. It starts with getting connected, get educated about the impact uh, that interoperability can afford, understand your current capabilities, and begin to be vocal around you needing interoperability solutions. I firmly believe that <clears throat> the infrastructure 
largely was built over the last decade and a half, two decades, because of the incentives by the federal government, right, in that part of the healthcare industry. I think demand for interoperability from the provider level will move interoperability light years faster than anything else we can do. So educating providers around the importance of interoperability, the impact of interoperability, understanding a roadmap to it, uh, understanding the first thing is getting connected. It won't be perfect in the get, uh, in the first place, but they have a role to play in not only telling us what's important to them from workflow perspective, the interoperability can help, but also what is the relevant knowledge that they need, meaning how do I take certain data elements out of what they're getting to draw attention to those with the right context and put them in the right place in their EHR um, uh, so that they're not filtering out that data, but that's being done for them. I think you'll see a, a marked difference in providers' motivation around interoperability um, as we begin to chip away at those things. It's interesting because I, uh, I recently listened to Elon Musk's biography. I, I think it's Walter Isaacson, and it was long, but it was excellent. Um, and one of the things that multiple things resonated with me, but one in particular, uh, as it relates to the, what at times feels insurmountable task we're seeking to take on here in driving connectivity. Uh, you know, he's seeking to have autonomous driving and people on the moon and wants to expend, extend civilization out to different planets, right? And his, the urgency with which he approached everything, his, his fear is that man will destroy themselves here on earth. And we have to create either through climate change or whatever it may be, and that we have to get out to these other planets as quickly as possible. So it's just built into his company and built into the, the problem that they're solving. That really struck me because that is the continued sense of urgency that as an industry, we need to take on because we're we have a looming, very tangible. We don't we don't know about you know the end of human sort of end of human civilization, but we have this very tangible mounting crisis in healthcare, and it's it's moving on the fast track to not a good outcome right now unless we transition it quickly. And the sense of urgency with which we need to apply all of this, and how many hands that takes to do that. Uh, no to as, you know, trying to drive connectivity everywhere. And then the work that we do with HIT vendors to educate, like each EHR taking on the education of their provider community, providers taking on the initiative to educate themselves and creating that sense of urgency across the continuum, because it has to, it has to change. Like you said, it's inevitable, it has to change. Or what? <laughs> what else is going to happen? So it was a great yeah, point, I think but the two parallels between them, um, I some days feel like we are extending civilization out to another planet. And well, I that's what we're tackling in healthcare. I think you're absolutely right about the criticality and the urgency around fixing the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and it, it sounds strange for a provider to say fix the U.S. healthcare system. It's broken. And it doesn't mean that we don't have the greatest healthcare technology in the world. It doesn't mean that we don't provide pockets of clinical excellence um, uh, across the country, et cetera. It doesn't mean that we aren't safe, um, uh, et cetera. So I don't put fears in people's minds in that regard necessarily, but I think we can always do better. Um, I think we can absolutely do better from a safety perspective. We can do better from an outcomes perspective. We can absolutely do better from a cost perspective, which allows us to reach more people um, if we're not spending so much in waste um, uh, in healthcare. So it is broken um, and there's an urgency around fixing it. And part of that urgency around fixing it is the people who are paying for healthcare. It's not you and me, right? I mean, I'm paying through it for a high deductible. Um, when my deductible's met, it's my employer that's paying for it, right? And every employer that's paying for um, health insurance for their employees, they're looking to try and minimize how much they actually have to spend. And it's not because they don't want to take care of their employees, but they don't want to overspend for things they shouldn't have to buy, right? Um, and the same is true with the, the federal government. We all know the Medicare statistics that we've talked about, about a doubling between 2010 and 2030 of the Medicare population, a doubling of the cost, um, a doubling of the disease burden, and an increase in life expectancy of those people, which put a real financial point, um, uh, a financial urgency um, in, in uh, fixing some of healthcare's biggest problems uh, moving forward. So, yeah, it's interesting. You 
I'll, you used a, a quote from a book um, by Elon Musk, and I'll use a quote from a movie you know, that I like, Braveheart. Um, and it's when William Wallace is talking to uh, the nobles in Scotland trying to get them to unite. And he says to them, we've been so long fighting for the scraps of Longshank, the king of England's table, that we've forgotten our God-given right to something else. And what that and, and that resonates to me as a provider. We've been we've been focused so much on having to deal with an electronic record and this and that and regulation pushed down by this and payment reform pushed down by this and so forth that we've forgotten our position as the only people who can actually deliver care in the country um, and what an impact that actually has on how we deliver care and using our voice in that way. We have a responsibility to be educated about what uh, uh, the best ways are to do that. And then we have uh, an opportunity uh, to be very vocal about that and actually uh, speak into it. So I look forward. And one of the things that I enjoyed um, really about coming to know too is I enjoyed the ability to talk to providers, provide, listen, number one, um, number two, provide education around what we can do, what we're seeking to do with interoperability and how that ultimately impacts them. And then listen again to them around the prioritization of those things so that we can actually bring what va- what they value most as quickly as we can um, uh, so that they can actually see the value and become uh, converts and believers. But I, I do think we have um, an, an opportunity to do something different with providers. So Awesome. And in future podcasts to bring on providers of different personas and have them speak to them as part of the education. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and at, it be an education for us as well. Right. Um, because I think you know, one of the things I said, one of the things I said to somebody who was quoting a provider, I said, once you've talked to one provider, you can get some common themes, but yeah. you've heard one provider's opinion. Right. Um, and that opinion is a valid opinion and it's formed by the unique nature of their experiences and where they see themselves in the healthcare system. Right. Um, uh, I think the big things that we talked about today are pretty universal principles amongst providers um uh and and pretty applicable but um yeah i look forward to that too look forward to that too well guys i appreciate everybody uh staying with us today a great conversation and again continuing to use a real life healthcare story as it um uh, progresses to kind of illustrate and discuss interoperability its impact and how it's foundational in solving some of healthcare's biggest problems so appreciate you guys being on the journey with us with us Teresa. till next time thanks for joining us today That's a wrap for this episode. Please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss an episode. Get No2 connected today and set yourself and your organization free to unlock your potential. For more information on the value of being No2 connected, visit us at www.no2.com. Follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Connect. Listen. Transform. Transform.